Bibles, as I hope you do, go ahead and turn to the book of Daniel. You can just put your little bookmark there. We'll, we'll be there for the next several weeks. Um, also, just so you know, um, if you um, are in one of our table groups, if you're in one of our uh, men's only or women's only table groups, or if you would like to be in one of those, those are starting up again this week. Uh, and uh, in fact, if you need information about that, come talk to me, come talk to my wife. We'll point you to the people that you, you need to talk to. Uh, but those table groups are starting up. And table groups is just a way we talk about small groups. We believe we have uh, meaningful, intimate conversations, usually around tables, uh, you know, we do it at the dining room table, coffee tables. If we meet, we usually have a table in between us drinking coffee, um, sometimes tea. Uh, but so, so we just call them table groups. So if that helps you. Um, so we're in the book of Daniel, and we're going to begin going through the 12 chapters of Daniel. And so I want to begin with just giving a little bit of historical setting. How do we get to Daniel chapter 1. Like, like what happens that we're reading in the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar comes. So in the Old Testament, uh, we read that Israel is the people of God. God saves Israel, brings them out of Egypt. He sustains them in the wilderness. He brings them into the promised land. Eventually, we have a king named David, and under him, he defeats all of the enemies of Israel, uh, sets up the capital of Israel, which is Jerusalem, and then his son comes, which is the wisest man to have ever lived on the earth other than Jesus, and his name is Solomon, and he reigns, and he builds a great temple for, for God, and so what we have here is we have God's people in God's land experiencing the blessing of God under God's rule. They live in the very city of God, Jerusalem, um, and they have the temple of God, which is where they worship God and where God has said, I will dwell. It, everything looks perfect. Almost too good to be true. And then what we see is right after Solomon's reign, Israel is divided up into two kingdoms. There becomes a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The northern kingdom retains the name Israel, and eventually, the, oh, all they have is bad kings. I think they have 18 wicked kings, 18 kings that rebel against the rule of God. And because of that, in 722 B.C., they're taken captive by Assyria, and they're taken into exile. Now, the southern kingdom fares a little better, but not much. They have 22 kings, I believe 12 good, 10 bad. And even the good kings often are not able to truly save the people. And so what we have is the southern kingdom, Judah, where Jerusalem is, is continually rebelling against God also, which eventually will lead to Nebuchadnezzar coming and laying siege on Jerusalem. And let me just read um, a little description of God's people um, about, his, about their king in the southern kingdom from 2 Kings chapter 21, verse 4. I just want you to get a picture. This is one of the kings of God's people, one of the wicked kings, and his name is Manasseh. And he, Manasseh, built altars in the house of the Lord. So in the temple, 
of which the Lord had said, In Jerusalem I will put my name. And he built altars for all the host of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he burned his son as an offering and used fortune telling and omens and dealt with mediums and with necromancers. He did much evil in the sight of the Lord, provoking him to anger. He worships all the false gods, sacrifices his own son, uh, verse 9, but they did not listen, and Manasseh led them astray to do more evil than the nations had done whom the Lord destroyed before the people of Israel. So the people who don't know God, Manasseh has led Judah, the people of God, to do even more evil than what they have done. 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 12 and 13, we now have God's response. Therefore says the Lord, therefore thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing upon Jerusalem and Judah such disaster that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And I will stretch over Jerusalem the measuring line of Samaria and the plumb line of the house of Ahab. And I will wipe Jerusalem as one wipes a dish, wiping it and turning it upside down. So that is the spiritual condition of Israel, of Judah, before we're kind of coming in to where we do in Daniel. They have treated Jerusalem, the city, the capital, and they've treated the temple, which is in the city, like a get-out-of-jail-free card. Kind of, well, if we have the city and we have the temple, surely we're good. God will certainly bless us. Kind of like people today, sometimes... I go to church, I have a Bible, surely I'm a Christian, surely God will only bless me, regardless of how we live. But what we see in Daniel is that is not the case at all. Nebuchadnezzar will come, king of Babylon, he will lay three sieges upon Jerusalem, 605, 597, and 586, and on the last one, he completely and absolutely decimates the city. And that's where we come in to Daniel, where Nebuchadnezzar has now come, and he's beginning to lay siege on Jerusalem. So that's a little bit of historical background. Now then, how do we not read Daniel? I think that's important, because as we begin, um, just as I have been studying, I have found good studies and bad studies. I've listened to good sermons, I've listened to bad sermons. I've read good commentaries, and I've read bad commentaries. And there seems to be a pitfall that many people fall into when they come to the book of Daniel. And I'm sure many of you have, have read and done studies on Daniel. Maybe those have been good. Maybe they have not been as good. But often, the, the, the studies will make Daniel the hero of the story. Uh, they might say something like, dare to be a Daniel. And the message becomes very moralistic. It's, look at Daniel. He is faithful. Look at what he does. Because he is faithful, because he is good, God is now faithful to him. As if Daniel's faithfulness earns God's faithfulness. And that's not the message of Daniel. The message of Daniel is not that we idolize Daniel, but that it's actually our eyes are directed from Daniel to the God of Daniel, the one who rules over the nations, faithfully providing for his people. And so as we come through Daniel, we will see how we live as God's people, but only as a response to who our God is. And so today, as we begin chapter 1, kind of setting the stage for the whole book, what I want us to see is our God is powerful, he is present with his people, and he provides for us. So I want us to see that. He's powerful, he's present, and he provides for his people. 
And so I'm going to ask you to stand. One of the things we do here is we stand when we read the Word of God. We do so because we believe God's Word comes inspired by the very Spirit of God with His full authority. So we do so to remind ourselves this is no ordinary book. Daniel chapter 1. If you need to sit, if you need to take breaks, that's okay. Feel free to do so. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God, and he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and he placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Aspenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance, and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace, and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years. And at the end of that time, they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And, of, and, the, tri, and the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel, he called Belteshazzar. Hananiah, he called Shadrach. Mishael, he called Meshach. And Azariah, he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should, I, for why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king? Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths eat, who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter, and he tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance, fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before King Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. I want to pray. Father, Give us wisdom today as we begin this book. God, may your spirit be with us. Open our eyes to see the glory of you. Father, we ask that today in your word we would see your glory. We would see your power. 
your presence, your provision. We would see that you are a God like no other, that you are a God who rules the nations, and yet you are with us. You love us. You are compassionate and kind, and even when we are not faithful, you are faithful. God, help us to have this vision that your God, that your word gives us of you today. God, encourage us. Fill us with hope. Fill us with boldness in the faith of your son, Jesus Christ. And Lord, if there is anyone who does not know you today, I pray that through your word and the power of your spirit, that they would come to see that you are the one true God. In your wonderful name, Jesus, amen. You all may be seated. So the title today is God Gave, and what we'll see three times in the text, we read the words God Gave, and so we'll just go one at a time, we'll work our way through. God gave Judah into the hands of Babylon, 605 BC, this is where we start. It's the third year of King Jehoiakim, and we read that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, has come and he's, over, and he's uh, taken the vessels that were in the temple of God. He's brought them and put them in the temples of his gods. He also takes people of the royal family, the nobility, the youth without blemish. Uh, everyone who looks great and, and has wisdom and understanding, he brings them over into Babylon. And according to Babylonian historians, in fact, according to world historians, it looks like Babylon has defeated Judah. According to the Babylonian priests, they would say our gods, the gods of Babylon, have overcome the God of Israel, the God of Judah, Yahweh. And surely there are many Jews who are now in exile and they're wondering this, what has happened? We had the temple, we had the city, how are we now in exile? Has our God failed us? Is he no longer with us? Surely there is a devastation that has come upon them. They're wrestling. Their world has been turned upside down. They're not sure what to do. But verse 2 gives us some very key words. If you look at verse 2, the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Why was Judah defeated by Babylon? Was it because Babylon was stronger? Was it because they had more power, more might, more wisdom? Were their gods actually greater than Yahweh, the God of Judah? No. What we see is that God is actually the one in control. It's because God gives Jerusalem into the hand of Babylon that they have defeated Judah. It has nothing to do with Babylonian power, might, strength, or wisdom. It has everything to do with God gave them into their hand. In fact, if we were to go back to 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 17, Isaiah comes to Hezekiah. Isaiah is a prophet. Hezekiah is one of the, the last good kings that we have. And he comes to him because Hezekiah had let Babylonian officials come in to the city and look at everything that they had. And this is what Isaiah comes and says, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. That would take place almost a hundred years prior to the events in 586 BC, where, um, or in 605 BC, where Daniel or Nebuchadnezzar has now overcome Judah. 
clear message of the Bible is that there is one God, and he rules the nations, all nations, all places, all things, all peoples. There is nothing that takes place outside of his control. In fact, if you turn, just turn over to chapter 4, verse 34. This is going to be King Nebuchadnezzar, and I can't wait for us to get here, because here in chapter 1 to chapter 4, we're going to see the transformation that takes place in the salvation of King Nebuchadnezzar. But this is what Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of chapter 4. And he says this about God. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. And none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? So here, the pagan king who has just overcome Judah, taken the, the vessels that belong in the house of God, put them in the gods that he worships. Now, at the end of chapter 4, says there is one true God. His kingdom lasts. His kingdom rules. Everything else will pass away now there's another word that also brings us hope here in verse 2 in verse 2 we read that babylon is in the land of shinar now do you remember where else we read about shinar a little bible trivia you're like man shinar is that even important genesis 11 after the flood all the peoples of the earth, rather than filling the earth like God has told them to, they gather in one place. Do you know what that place is called? I said, it's okay, you can say it. It's, good job, it's Shinar. They gather there, and do you know what? They build a tower. Do you know what it's called? Babylon, Babel. You see it? They build a tower of Babel. And the point is, they're going to build the tower, and it's going to reach the heavens so that they can be gods. These are people who say, we are in control, we are God, we will do what we want, we make our own destiny, no one stands in our way. And then, in comical language, in Genesis 11, we read, God comes down to their tower. So they're building a tower to reach the heavens, and God says, I will come down to their little tower and what he does, he changes the languages. That's why there's all the languages that we have today. He changes the languages, and he disperses them across the earth. What we see is that man cannot resist and cannot thwart the will of God. God is the one who is in control. And what we see way back thousands of years prior in Shinar, when they built the Tower of Babel, that Shinar did not stand, and neither will this one either. Go to verse 21 in Daniel chapter 1. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. Well, who's King Cyrus? He's the king of Persia. Well, who's Persia? That's the kingdom that overcomes Babylon. Babylon looks powerful. It looks mighty. How can they ever be defeated? Well, we're just simply told already in verse 21, in passing language, Babylon's not going to stand either. And in fact, next week, while we get into Daniel chapter 2, we're going to see that all the kingdoms of the world will eventually be blown away like the wind. And there is one kingdom that will stand, and it will stand forever because it belongs to the everlasting God who rules 
forever with everlasting dominion, which is what King Nebuchadnezzar says at the end of chapter 4. It's the kingdom of God. There's one kingdom that will stand, and it's the kingdom of God. All other kingdoms, Babylon, America, North Korea, China, take your pick, none will stand except for the one true kingdom of God. So the first thing that that Daniel is bringing us in here to know is that our God is in control. Now it's key. It doesn't look like he's in control, does it? Do you ever feel like that? It doesn't look like God's in control. You're wondering, what is happening? How is this good? How did we get here? We begin to question, God, are you there? Have you ever felt that? Maybe you didn't say it out loud, but it felt it in your soul. God, I don't think you're here. Surely you could not be here and this actually happen. And yet here we see God's people have been destroyed. God's temple has been decimated. They live in exile under a foreign rule and God rules. We must not miss this. There is nothing, not wars, disease, famine, pestilence, natural disasters, or death that takes place outside of God's rule. There is no president, no dictator, no terrorist, no prime minister, no ambassador, no senator, no congressman, no mayor, no city council person, no community official. No one has any rule outside the very rule of our God. That's how we come into Daniel. That from the very beginning, there is one God, He rules. Do you know that your work Your home, your car, your children, your money, your health, all of that is under the sovereign rule of God. Like, let that encourage you. We have a good, righteous, faithful God. And while we think we're in control, the good news is we're not. The better news is there is a God who is, and He can actually control it. So the second part. God gave Daniel favor in Babylon. We begin, God is powerful. He's in control. Verse 6, we're introduced to four Hebrew Jewish exiles. Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They've all been enrolled in Babylonian university. They're going to be given masters and doctorates in, in Babylonian theology and understanding. They're going to be there for three years, understanding literature Uh, in the language of the Chaldeans. At the end of this, they stand before the king. Verse 7, they all get new names. Daniel becomes Belteshazzar. Hananiah becomes Shadrach, Mishael, Meshach, Azariah, Abednego. All of their Hebrew names point towards God, his faithfulness, his rule. All of their new Babylonian names point towards the rule and power of Babylonian gods. So what's taking place? Think about this. What's Nebuchadnezzar's tactic? He's giving them a new identity. King Nebuchadnezzar is making it clear, you're no longer Hebrews, you're no longer Jews, you are now Babylonians. This is who you are. Embrace this. And then comes verse 8. And verse 8 is the turning point in the chapter. Verse 8 we read, but Daniel resolved and the word resolve means he took a firm stance in the heart and he says i will not eat of the king's food or the wine it will defile him now how will it defile him well we actually don't know 
just so you know, we, we actually don't know. Some you might read, well, it could violate Hebrew dietary laws that are given back in Leviticus, but the problem with that is that there's no law that would prevent him from drinking the wine. And in chapter 10, verse 3 of Daniel, Daniel will say, I am now going to fast from meat and wine. So it sounds like this fast is more, or this refrain is more temporary than permanent. Others have said, well, um, he refused it because all of the food would have been worshipped to Babylonian, or would have been offered to Babylonian gods first before it comes to him. But most likely, the vegetables would have been offered also to the Babylonian gods. So that argument just doesn't seem like it holds it all together. It also has been noticed that in, in the Bible, what we see is when we have a meal together, there's a relationship with each other. There's affirmation of one another. There's an acceptance of one another. So, so maybe he's simply drawing the line here and saying, no, no, I, I'm not accepting what King Nebuchadnezzar is saying to me. I'm not Babylonian. I am still Jewish. We don't know exactly why he draws the line at food. Now notice, he willingly accepts the, the, the training. He willingly takes on the new name. There's no resolve to abstain from that, but he draws the line at the food. We're not 100% sure why, but what we can see, or we're not sure the, the necessary understanding, but what we know is that Daniel is saying, hold on here. I am a Hebrew. And I still believe in the one true God. And so he is not just falling in to compromise. He is not just jumping on board with everything that Babylon says. He accepts some things. This is good for us. We need to understand this. In today's culture, there are good things. We need to cling to them. We need to embrace them. There's other things we draw the line and we say, no, I'm not going to do that. Whether it's clear in the word or sometimes it's way the Spirit leads us in accordance with the word. And so that's what Daniel is doing here. He's embracing some things. He's saying, okay, I can do this. I can do this. No, this I believe will violate my faith. I will not compromise here. We'll come back to that in a little bit. But what happens? Verse 11, Daniel appear, appeals to the steward of the chief eunuch. Verse 12, he says... How about we do this? How about we, we do a test? Test your servants for 10 days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Verse 14, they listen to him. Verse 10, we see at the end of 10 days that Daniel and his friends look better and fatter. So two things to notice here. For one, this is a costly stance. He's drawing the line. Several hundred years from now, there'll be a man named Antiochus Epiphanes. He will come into Jerusalem. He will demand that the Jews eat certain foods and not others. There are some Jews that reject what he say. They draw the line. He kills them on the spot. And what we know from Nebuchadnezzar as we go on into the book, he's a wild man. Like he's got a temper. He's angry. And notice the chief eunuch. He says... Why would you endanger my head? He's like, if you don't look good, I get killed. And guess what? If he gets killed, guess who else is probably going to get killed? Daniel will be killed and his friends. This is no just, it doesn't matter. There's, there's, no, there's no consequences what happens here. No, Daniel draws a line and says, I'm willing to die right here. And we'll see what happens. But I trust my fate in God's hand. I will not compromise in my faith. 
And the next thing we see is that he looks fatter because he ate veggies and water. Now, what kind of diet is that? Like, seriously, I know some of you, you're like, okay, new year, we got diet. And probably it includes veggies, right? According to Daniel, man, we should eat meat and wine. We'll look thinner, right? Like, I'm just saying, there could be, it'd be cool if it worked that way. Now, think about it. How does anyone look fatter and better in 10 days? This isn't two weeks. This isn't 20 days. This isn't a month. This isn't six months. This is 10 days. You can go to the gym and eat right in 10 days, not notice the difference, right? It takes like three weeks. It takes a month. Some of it takes like six months till we ever see results. Ten days, there's results noticeable enough that the guy says, dude, you look better by eating veggies and water than eating meat and wine and all this good stuff. So yeah, you can do that. We'll go ahead and let you keep eating vegetables. So how did this take place? How is it that Daniel and his friends are allowed to do this? How is it that they actually look better? Is it because those veggies were that good? Is it the way they prepared them? I mean, do we need Babylonian recipes today? Wouldn't that be cool? Maybe it works. We go back to verse 9. God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. Why was Daniel and his friends allowed to do this? Because of God. Why is it Daniel and his friends looked fatter in 10 days? Because of God. Hear this. Even in exile, God's with his people. Do you know that? Do you know that there's nowhere that you can go that God is not there with you? God rules the nations. Remember, he's king. He's all-powerful. He owns everything, possesses everything, knows everything, sees everything, and therefore he is present everywhere. Now, by appearance sake, remember, it looks like the God of Judah has been defeated, right? It looks like Yahweh's been defeated by the Babylonian gods. But in reality, he rules and is present with them just as much as he was in Jerusalem and now as he is in Babylon when they're in exile. Do you hear that? There's nowhere we can go outside the presence of God. There's nowhere you can go. Some of you, you feel alone at times. Some of you, you feel shame, you feel guilt. You think, God surely is not with me. You look at your circumstances, you look at your situation, you go, I have to be alone. No way would God let this happen. And what we're going to see in the weeks to come, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego go into a fiery furnace. Daniel goes into a lion's den, and God is with them at every moment. Our circumstances do not reveal the presence of God, or the absence of God. Suffering does not mean God is absent from us, but rather Scripture seems to show that in suffering, persecution, tribulation, God is not absent, but he's present, and he's working to provide for us everything that we need. And that's what we're going to see as we go all throughout this book. Next point. God gave Daniel and his friends great wisdom in Babylon. Look at verse 18. 
Daniel's friends have completed Babylonian University. They have their master's degree. They have their hats on, their, their robes on. They walk across. They get their diplomas. And verse 19, or, and they stand before the king. Verse 19 and 20. Notice what we read. Verse 19. None was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Verse 20. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in his kingdom. Now think about that. We've got four 13-year-olds, 14-year-olds, 15-year-olds. Like that's it's literally, most likely the age they're up. 13, 14, 15. Were they just that much smarter? Were they just like just savants in hiding? You know, all of a sudden, like, the potential has been noticed and it's just shining forth? Are they that much better than all the other wise men that Babylon has? Was it talent? Is this just raw skill? Like, these guys, they're just good. They're the ones everyone picks on their team. No matter what sport you're playing, you just pick these guys because they're just better than everyone else. Is that what the text leads us to come to? Verse 17, God gave them learning and skill and all literature and wisdom and Daniel had understanding and all visions and dreams. How? How is it that they're better than everyone else? Not just a little better, 10 times better, superior, because God gave them wisdom. God has not left his people, he's present with his people, and he's providing for them everything they need. You can't miss it. The point's not Daniel, is it? You read a commentary, and it's all about Daniel. What's the point? It's the God of Daniel. He's powerful, he's present, he's providing. That's what we see here is that through the life of Daniel and his friends, we are going to see the God who truly rules. That's the point as we go through Daniel, that there is one God. He's powerful, he's present, and he provides. So why is this so important for us today? I want you to think about this. Why do we need to know this message today? Because we, as the church, live in exile. The New Testament writers clearly communicate that because of our faith in Jesus, we are aliens and strangers on this earth. Philippians chapter 3, verse 20, Paul, one of the New Testament writers, will say our real, true citizenship is in heaven with God. 2 Corinthians 5, Paul will say we are ambassadors for Christ, meaning we are from another country, we are here on this earth representing Christ. Peter and James, in both of their letters to the church, refer to the church as exiles. Jesus in John 15, 19, he says this, if you were of the world, if you were a citizen of the world, the world would love you as its own, but because you are not of the world, your citizenship is actually in heaven, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. In John 17, Jesus will say, just as I am not of the world, so you are not 
of the world. We are in the world. We live here, but we're not of the world. Daniel is in Babylon, but he's not Babylonian. You see it? So what we have here is the message of Daniel is to God's people in exile. And what we see is because of our faith in Jesus, we are a people in exile. So as we're coming through the book of Daniel, we're seeing the God who rules over his people as they're in exile. This is our message today. This is us today. Because you know it. I know it. We see it. We live in a very anti-God world. Throughout the world right now, there are hundreds and thousands of Christians being persecuted. In fact, December 29th, nine Christians were shot in a church in Cairo, Egypt. In North Korea, there's countries like North Korea. You can go to opendoors.com. It'll give you the top 50 countries that are persecuted. Um, North Korea, right there at the top, wherever you are, you can be arrested and or killed for being a Christian. Or there's countries like China, where there's places where it's okay to be a Christian, and places where if you're a Christian, you might lose your life or be arrested. So there's more sporadic persecution. But suffering and persecution is not the only tactic of the world. In Daniel 1, we see that King Jehoiakim, he experiences the kick of the world, right? The world comes in, kicks him down, takes him. But Daniel and his friends experience the kiss of the world. See, Babylon comes to Daniel. Now think about this. He says, you're one of the finest people. We have chosen you out of all the Jewish people. And we've chosen you to come to Babylonian University. We want to have you learn everything there is about us. We want you to know our language, our culture. We want you to know who we are. We want you to be a part of us. And in fact, we love you so much. When people talk about you or when people hear about you, we don't want them to think that you're in exile. We're going to give you a new name so that when people hear about you, they're going to think, oh man, good, strong, Babylonian. So we're going to give you names. And, and we know that this is a hard transition. So we're going to give you some food. And we want you to have the best food. We want to bring you in and, and we want you to have the greatest experience. So we're going to give you food. We're going to give you education. We're going to give you comfort. We'll give you fame. We're going to let you stand in the very presence of the king. You see what the temptation here is? The temptation is to compromise in the faith. The temptation is to become just like the world. It's, it's to be like a jellyfish, right? Jellyfish don't have spines. And all they do is they float wherever the current takes them. And that's the message that the world wants to have. It's just, just, just flow with the world. Just go with what the world says. You can be a Christian. Just, just leave it at home. You don't need to talk about it at Starbucks. You don't need to talk about it at work. You just, you just leave that there. It's okay. You don't actually don't even need to attend church. Look, I know you're busy. Make it when you can. But if you can't be there, that's fine. Reading the Bible, prayer, totally optional. In fact, giving to the church, come on, God knows you have other bills. It's okay. You don't have to give. You'll be fine. You don't have to report all your income. Look, there's a lot of people that don't report all their income. Cut some corners. Who's going to know? Right? Maybe it's at work. Hey, you want to take some extra vacation days? Look, that's fine. Just don't let the boss know. It'll be fine. We'll cover for you. You'll still get your money. You'll be great. 
Look, you don't really need to share the gospel. Like, you don't want to make waves at work, do you? You don't, want, you don't want to make it awkward. And I mean, you don't want to offend anyone, right? You don't want to call someone a sinner. And so let, let's, just, let's just keep that down. You'll just, just win them over by being really nice. And so, so just don't talk about it. Keep your head down, Daniel. Don't make waves. Just embrace Babylon. This is your home. You'll be fine. Isn't that the message of the world? Have you ever felt this kind of compromise in your life? You ever experienced the temptation to just blend in rather than to let people know, wait, I'm a Christian. I draw the line. Or do you not have a line? What what I've noticed is that there's a lot of Christians. My my, my kids do this all the time. (laughs) They do it over everything. Hey, Dad. And I'm like, that, that's not how it works. <laughs> but there's a lot of Christians, and they get more upset about NFL players not standing for a national anthem than the name of God being blasphemed. What do you talk about? What do you get upset about? You get more upset at things happening in the world, tax reform and other stuff, than God's people being persecuted and killed. What do you get upset about? Where do we begin to draw the line? Now, maybe you're here, and you know you felt this temptation. You felt this compromise pressing in on you, and you simply say, I don't know how to stand up underneath that. I don't know how how to resist. How do I stand firm? How How do I actually let people know that I'm a Christian? I don't think I can do it. I'm not strong enough. Look, I'm the only Christian at my work. I'm the only Christian in my mom's group. I'm the only Christian at school. I don't know of anyone else. How can I possibly stand firm? You ever feel like that? Like, I, like what am I to do? I don't even know that much. You ever think that? Man, what if they ask me a question? And then I'm going to look stupid. And then God's going to look stupid. So I just won't say anything. That's always better. I mean, that's, what, that's the game we play, right? It's okay to nod your head. Like, right? Let's, we're, I've been there. You've been there. We're only lying if, you're not, if you say you haven't been there. So are we left just to wonder, man, what do I do? Or does God give us hope? Let me just suggest two things of hope. And it all comes in Jesus. Number one, God gave Jesus from heaven to earth to come from heaven to earth to live as an exile here on earth. You get that, right? Jesus comes as the outsider on earth. His home is in heaven in the kingdom of God where his glory is and angels are falling down before him saying, glory to God. And he leaves all of it and he comes to earth where he faces temptation, where he faces compromise. Remember, Satan comes, I'll give you all the kingdoms of the world right now. You don't need to go to the cross. Bow down. I'll give it to you right now. You just got to bow before me. The people say, Jesus, we want you to be king. We love that you feed us. You do everything. Man, you are awesome. We want you to be the king for us. And Jesus continues to resist the temptation to avoid the cross. He lives a faithful life 
where eventually he will go from getting the kiss of the world to the kick of the world, where he'll be persecuted, beaten, arrested, and crucified, where he will die outside the city gates like a dog, like an exile, where he will be killed. But he doesn't stay dead, does he? That's the good news of the gospel. He doesn't stay dead. He rises victorious over death, sin, Satan, and so that we who believe in him would be forgiven, we'd be adopted into the family of God, we'd be given the true citizenship of the kingdom that forever reigns, which means our citizenship is forever. He dies and raises so that one day we would know that the new heavens and new earth will come, all the earthly kingdoms will be destroyed, and all those who have believed in him will live with him in the kingdom of God, in his presence, experiencing his glory, rejoicing in him at all times. On that day, we will not be a minority. Do you know that? The church will no longer be a minority. On that day, the church will no longer face persecution, suffering, pain, exile, temptation, or any other sin. On that day, we will experience the pure physical joy of God with us forever. We'll be in his glory, and we will never, ever, ever be separated again. Exile is a temporary earthly status of the church it's temporary we are supposed to be outsiders and our days in exile are coming to an end with every tick of the clock so that's that's hope number one we know we're not going to be in exile every day so we have this hope exile's temporary We know our citizenship is secure in heaven, and one day God's going to bring that reality to earth, and we will experience the fullness of it. That's not the only hope we have. The other hope we're told in Hebrews, in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told that Jesus has a, Jesus sympathizes with us in our weakness and our temptation. See, he came and he experienced everything that we experience. He experienced temptation. He experienced the, the temptation to compromise. He experienced persecution. He experienced suffering. He experienced the name calling. He experienced everything. And yet, he resisted compromise and sin, and he stood victorious. And so now Hebrews tells us, as our high priest, he will graciously give us everything we need to stand firm in our faith. You hear that? Everything you need is given to you by the grace of God in Jesus. You have everything you need in Jesus Christ. At this moment, if you're a believer, everything you need is given to you by grace in Jesus Christ. There is nothing you need to stand firm in the gospel, in your faith, that is not for you right now in Jesus Christ by grace. You have everything you need in the grace of Jesus. It can't be more clear, can we? 
This is the gospel that we have. This is the hope that we have. You can live faithful because our God is faithful and he provides everything you need in Jesus Christ, which means you are not alone right now or ever. You are never without lack. You are never alone. So what does that mean? I mean, we could, we could talk like about a hundred things right here, a thousand things on ways to apply this. Some of you are here today and you're in a marriage and you're wondering, how did I get in this marriage? And you wonder, I don't know if my spouse is saved. I don't even know if they love me. They're usually not nice to me. In fact, I actually, I don't know if I love them. How on earth am I supposed to be faithful to them? What do we know in God's truth? What does God's word tell us? Our God rules. He reigns supreme. He reigns supreme on your wedding day. It was not by accident. And he reigns supreme today. He is present with you at every moment of your marriage, even when you feel alone and scared. And he's giving you all the grace you need to love your spouse, to be faithful to your spouse, not because you're strong, not because you have your abilities, but because he is faithful to provide everything you need in your marriage. Maybe, you're, maybe you face work. Maybe you're in the military. And maybe you're in school. And you know, man, do, do, I, do I share the gospel? It's hard. that They say, you know, you got to be real careful. Don't talk about it unless if it's brought up to you. How do I walk this tightrope? You're scared of what others will say. Am I the only Christian at school? Am I the only Christian at work? What if they know that I'm a Christian? What if I actually draw the line? Am I going to endanger my job? Will I endanger my reputation? Will I get kicked off the team? Will friends stop liking me? And we begin to wonder with these things. And yet you know at the same time, I'm supposed to share, just I don't know how to do it. Our God is present with you at work, at school, in any hobby that you do, at every point in your life. He's in control. Listen, your boss, your commander, your teacher, your coach, your principal, they're not ultimately in control of you. You know that, right? Like we think, what if I share the faith? What if I lose my job? As if my boss has that authority. Who has the authority? God ultimately does. How is it that Daniel had favor in a pagan country to uphold his Jewish belief in God? Because God gave favor. So let us not put man in an authority that he does not have. Now we do know sometimes, like Daniel 1, it goes well when we share the gospel in the world, right? We love those days, right? I stood up for the gospel. It went well. I'm still accepted in Babylon. Nobody hates me. But if we keep going, I mean, Daniel ends up in a, in a lion's den. That's a bad day. Meshach and Abednego get called out by King Neb and they go to the fiery furnace. That's not fun. 
right? Like it doesn't always go well. So the idea is not, well, if it's going to go well, you stand firm. No, we be faithful, and we know our God is faithful. And if losing our job occurs because we draw the line and stand up for the gospel, let us be sure that our God is still in control. His authority has not been questioned. He is still with us, and he will provide for us just as he did before, and he will now. So let's remember who's in control and let's not give the world power that it does not actually have. Hear this. Whatever situation you are in, whatever temptation you face, God rules. He is powerful, He is present, and He provides everything you need in that situation. You need a car, you need a house. You need rent money. You need a job. You need patience for your children. (laughs) I mean, the list is endless, right? What is it that we need? God's grace will provide. I love in Matthew 7. Matthew 7 says, if you who are wicked, meaning you and me, like we're sinful people, like we're, we're not perfect, so it just says we're wicked. So if you don't like it, too bad. That's the way the Bible says it. If you're wicked, we know how to give good gifts, right? Like, we gave our kids laser tag guns for Christmas. It's off the hook. When you guys aren't here, you know what I do? We come here, we turn off the lights, and we play laser tag here. Like, it is awesome. And we can give you that link so you can get the guns too, and you can play with us. Like, we love to give good gifts to our children, right? Like, I love, not only because I love laser tag, but my kids are happy. And so the text goes, if we who are wicked know us how to give good gifts, how much more does our good, righteous, heavenly, all-powerful God love to give good gifts to his children? God is present, and he knows what to provide, when to provide it, how to provide it for us. So one last question, one last question. How did Daniel live faithful in Babylon? Like, how did he know where to draw the line, right? Like, that's a good question, I think. Okay, he drew the line. How did he know that? How do we know that? You're at work, you're at home, you're at school, you're on the soccer team, the football team. Pick where you're at. How do I know where to draw that line? How did he know how to be faithful at age 13, 14? in Babylonian University. How do we know how to do it today in this world? So I think we, we can at least give, the answer's not given to us explicit, but I will say there's at least two clues that we can take. Number one, Daniel 9, and we'll get there eventually. Daniel 9, he's reading from the prophet Jeremiah. He sees that the exile is only supposed to be 70 years based upon what he sees in God's word. He believes in that, and he begins praying for the release of God's people. So he has an understanding of God's word. Seems that he knows God's word. Seems that he somewhat loves God's word from our brief understanding of it right here. Clue number two comes from his grandfather. I think it's right. Or father. I'll have to go back and look. King Jehoiakim is the third to last king in Jerusalem. Straight up wicked. 
Before him, his father, before, before he reigned, his father reigned. Oh yeah, the grandson of Manasseh, so it's his father. Do you know who his father was? Do you know who the father of Jehoiakim was? Hey, Josiah, do you know the name? What was the father of Jehoiakim, Josiah? Come on, Josiah. This is probably why you're named that. He's not going to sit in the front row next week. <laughs> Sorry, but I love you. You know I do. You're a pastor's kid. You know this happens. So we've got a bunch of wicked kings, right? Josiah becomes king at eight. He's a good king. He's a righteous king. You know what he does? He leads a reformation for 31 years in all of Judah turns from idolatry to the worship of God. This is Jehoiakim's father. Jehoiakim's only been a king for 10 years. Daniel was born in the reign of Josiah in the great reformation of Judah. Josiah or Daniel's parents would have experienced almost a complete life under the rule of Josiah in this reformation. So for 10-ish years, Josiah has been raised in a godly home, understanding the, worship, understanding the God of the Bible and worshiping him. And now he's in the world, in Babylon, and it's because of his grounding, his foundation that he's had in the word of God, that he knows who God is. He knows that God is faithful, powerful, present, and provides. Therefore, he can live faithful. Listen, the message of Daniel is not, if we're faithful, God is faithful. Do not believe that. That's a lie of Satan. All right? The message of Daniel is, God is faithful. Therefore, we can be faithful. Because our God is faithful. He's never stopped ruling. His reign has never ceased. He always provides for his people. He's always present with his people. He's present or he's faithful in every way. Therefore, we have the joy of living faithful to God. And it comes because of the word of God. Hear this. If you want to know where to draw that line, if you want to know the God that Daniel knows, a God who is powerful, present, and provides, it only comes in the Word. Okay? It only comes in the Word. Yes, there is natural revelation. Natural revelation is good. That's what you get when you look at the ocean and mountains. All good. But inspired revelation that specifically lets us know who our God is so that then general revelation is even enhanced all the more comes from the Word of God. If you do not know the Word, you will not understand the power, presence, and provision. You might be able to say the three Ps, but you won't actually believe them. Does that make sense? We can all have head knowledge. Yes, I know God is good. Yes, I know He's present. Yes, I know He'll provide. But, 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 but. Right? It's only through the Word of God of God, that the Spirit of God grows us in our understanding of the one true God so that then we can live for him. So look, I know we don't do resolutions a lot. You made that clear last week, remember? There was like three of us were like, kind of resolution. But look, let's take one resolution. Let's just re resolve to be in 
the Word. Look, I don't care if you read the whole Bible in a month, in a week, in a year, or if you only read the New Testament, or if you read just a couple chapters, or if you read one verse a day. Let's just start somewhere. All right? You type in Bible reading plans, you'll get about 100 of them online. Email me, and I'll give you what I think are the best. I've done a lot. I have a lot that I like. You feel free to find your own. But listen, it's in the Word of God He reveals Himself. And as we come here, what happens is that the Word shows us the glory of God so that we're, when we're in the world and we're experiencing that kiss of the world and it looks tempting and we thinking maybe this is okay, the glory of God that has been ingrained into our minds, into our hearts, has transformed us into the very image of God that we then know how to draw the line, how to stand firm. Again, not because we're strong, that's not the message of the Bible. The message of the Bible is because our God is strong. He's powerful, he's present, and he provides everything that you need. So as we go in this word, go in this word, that's not, that's not bad either. As we go in the word, as we go in this year, let's be people of the word. Be in table groups. Table groups is a great way. We dive in the word together. We wrestle with the word of God. Be in the Word by yourself. Talk about the Word with others. In fact, one thing, I know one of the table groups is actually studying how do we love each other in these settings, especially right after. When you get done today, when, you get done, when we get done, and we get up, and you talk to each other, hey, what are you doing this week? Oh, hey, how's the weather? Oh, hey, you know, and all that. Say, hey, what did God do for you in the Word today? Ask that question to each other. It's a way different conversation than we normally have. Hey, how were you encouraged? the word today hey were you convicted by anything man i was convicted by this let's have some of those conversations as we go forth i'm going to pray and i'm going to ask the men to come forward and we'll partake of communion and we'll go forward today our father you are powerful you are present and you provide everything we need and ultimately god we see that at the cross of jesus christ you've clearly revealed yourself as powerful present and providing for us, God. Lord, I pray that we as a church, that we see that today. Lord, I pray that through your word and the spirit, open our eyes that your word becomes more and more and more beautiful to us today. And that because of your word, Lord, we would stand firm because our faith is growing in you. Because you are the God who reigns. God, help us to know that, to believe in that, to trust in that. In your name, Jesus, amen. I have a couple questions. So what we do, you can always text in questions. We'll try to answer them at the end. Good questions. If God gives us such good gifts, like I said in Matthew 7, I like when you quote my text back to me as if like you said this. Um, no, I'm just picking. It's actually cool. Um, how was the lion's den a good gift from, God's, from, from God for Daniel and his three friends? Super good question, right? How is it that the gifts of God, or how is it that the lion's den is a good gift? Well, did Daniel come out? Yes. Did the three friends come out of the fiery furnace? Yes. So just think about that. It doesn't always work that way, right? But for one, it shows immediately the Jews who are in exile, God is with them. And it reminds us today, 2,600 years removed, 
that our God is with us in suffering. When suffering comes, it does not mean the absence of God. The cross is probably the perfect illustration. What good can come out of Jesus Christ dying? Well, salvation of the world. That's what comes because of suffering. Uh, Two other questions. Um, Number one, where should I start reading? 66 choices. Um, Some might be easier than others. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Gospels in the New Testament. Good place to start. Um, Genesis, good place to start. Kind of means beginning. Um, But let let me urge you to ask three questions. When you're reading the Bible, ask this. What does this text tell me about God's power, about his provision, and about his presence? And maybe it won't be explicit, so maybe you'll need to answer it this way. How does this text show me my need for God's power, his presence, and his provision? So maybe answer it that way. Um, But Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Genesis, start there. Read with someone. Um, Last question. I think I answered this, but are you saying it's a good thing if we lose our job because of sharing the faith? How is that responsible to our family? Um, again, good question. No, I don't want anyone to lose their job, right? Like, that's not what we want. But are we, are we walking faithfully to God? And are we drawing the line as God calls us to, knowing that God is in control? And think about this. What picture do we want to give our children? Do we want to give them a picture of a jellyfish? I just keep my head down at work. I don't make waves. Is that the picture that we want our children growing up to see who our God is? Or will the picture of, I stood my ground, this is what happened, and it went well. I stood my ground, I lost my job. Children, this is what we must do. Now we're still going to trust that God will provide for us. What picture do we want to give to our children also? So think that through also. Um, Our God is big. Our God is glorious and he is mighty. And let's remember that. We're going to close with one last song and then you are dismissed.